0: D this week is the perfect example of why spring weather is a roller coaster. The temperatures go up, the temperatures go down, the temperatures go up, the temperatures go down. <laughs> yeah, we're th- we're fifty four right now, and about to get a rain gusher for two days. How about you? We are in the low fifties. It was forty eight when I got up, and I thought, oh, that is yeah, that's chilly. It's too chilly for house plants. Yesterday was 48, and I was really glad I didn't
1: take very many houseplants out yet. (laughs) That's right. But let's get started with this week's episode. Welcome to the Garden Angelus, where we talk about flowers, veggies, and all the best dirt. I'm Dean Ash from Guthrie, Oklahoma, where I garden on seven and a half acres out in the
0: country. And I'm Carol Michael from Indianapolis, Indiana, where I have a suburban garden measured in square feet. It's about a third of an acre.
1: We call ourselves Garden Angelists because we are evangelists for gardening. We love gardening and we really want you to love it too. Yes,
0: we do. And we aren't afraid to spill the beans and tell all of our gardening secrets, the good, the bad, and even the ugly. But that's enough of who, what, when, where. Let's move on to this week's episode. Hello, Dee. Hello, Carol. How does your garden grow? Uh, we've gotten a fair amount of rain, not not horrible amounts, but it's actually growing pretty well. I have to mow every three to four days. Mm -hmm. So I made really good progress on weeding out the vegetable garden beds, which had gotten away from me. And my older sister stopped by to pick up some tomato plants I'd grown for. And she said my vegetable garden had more weeds than hers. So I'm thinking I need to get busy and get this cleared out. (laughs) So I just have one more bed to do. And then along the back of the fence, there's a narrow bed where all the zinnias go. Got to weed that out. I'm very proud. 99% of all the plants I have purchased, including plants i purchased on Sunday, are and the sample plants I've gotten, they've all been potted up or they're in the ground. I think there's one little um, miniature evergreen from Isley Nursery out in Oregon and uh, Emerald Towers basil. Yep. I got some basil too that I got to get out and some begonias I started from seed. I forgot about those. They're still inside, but I did move Bobo. So
1: tell me how hard that was. Cause I haven't moved my Bobo's yet and I want them to go away.
0: They still, they look like crap. How long have they been in the ground? Probably five years. Well, mine had been in the ground three, three years. I don't know. Sharp shovel. Snap, snap, snap. And I've moved them to another bed in the back, kind of along this fenced area. And if they live, it's wonderful. if they don't, no one's heartbroken, but I gave them a shot, and i I got a pretty good root ball on them. Uh, I'm not trying for a root ball. I'm just trying to get
1: them out of the ground because I want to put not gonna be hard. I want to put lava lamp in their place. Maybe I'll do that when I get done here because I've got to go. I'm actually recording this at my son's house because my internet is still wrong. So, um, I mean, it's up, but barely. I had to reboot it three times yesterday, anyhow. I I could go home and maybe beat the rain, and then those lava lamps would settle in so well
0: because we're having rain. Oh, they would, they would love it if they got planted in right before a big rain. Mm -hmm. But so, where the boba was in front, and it's very sunny, and there's a that's where the bird feeding station is. We'll see if Augustachi. Blue boa, which is supposed to get to about two feet, and a bunch of yellow cone coneflowers, and then I threw in a couple of reblooming annual sunflowers just to give it some quick color. Yeah, that sounds pretty. We'll see how that goes. I'm a little concerned that bird feeder makes the ground so nasty below, but I'm I'm hoping these plants will do okay, and we'll see.
1: Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean. I ended up with bird seed all in my planters, but it's about gone now. I almost dug everything back up and put them back in, you know, got rid of that soil. But you know what? I weeded it four or five times and they're about done. So maybe you can do the same where your bird feeder is. I I think it'll be all right.
0: Plus, I'm picking strawberries, picking lettuce every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have had one spinach that bolted on me and I've already pulled it out because I'm trying to be good about that. And then I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned or not, but uh, I think she's a reader of my blog and found that I have these Columbine Tower Blue, Tower Pink, and she can't find the seeds. So she had asked me last fall or winter if I would save some seeds for her. So I went out over the weekend and I marked all, you know, this one's pink, this one's dark pink, light blue, dark blue, dark purple. And -hmm. I've got them marked all around the garden so I can harvest seeds. And I did hear from her last, last night, she sent an email because I said, you'll have to remind me, but I'm remembering. Good for you. I'm going to have have these uh, Columbine seeds. Good for you. That's nice of you to share. But what are you doing, Dee? Okay. So
1: I deadheaded a bunch of my roses because yeah, they bloomed and they did most, they always do most of their big first bloom around mother's day. And so I deadheaded everybody because then they'll bloom again in a month. Um, it takes about that long for them to gear back up, but I kind of like how roses look red, have the red foliage that's brand new. Uh-huh. Like after you deadhead a week later, they just look so pretty. So I like that almost as much as the blooms. And then I tied up all of the tomatoes and I tied up the Scheherazade lilies, which I have to put big pieces of rebar. They're so, you know, so I was going to say aggressive, but they're not aggressive. They're just tough and big. So I got big things of wire. I used that puffy wire. I don't even know what it's called, but it's plasticized wire. And I looped all of them. And so they're all standing up straight and not falling into the path, which I felt pretty good about because... I'm notorious for not doing those kind of maintenance jobs. And then I'm getting ready to do the chop, which we'll talk a little bit more about later.
0: Yeah, I I don't know what these lilies are that you're mentioning. These Scheherazade, blah, 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 lilies. What are these? I've never heard of them. You have to have heard of Scheherazade, the heroine. No. In all the stories. You never read the Arabian Nights? No, no. This is all new to me. Oh, so that's going to be our flower next week is these lilies. Cause I, I've never, and all the time we've done this podcast, you've never mentioned these lilies. I haven't.
1: Oh no. Well, they're a big part of my summer garden. So we should talk about them. They're on the corner of the house. Yeah. Uh, We got our flower deal for next week and we've also got our dirt. So
0: good deal. All right. Well, I'm going to start us off with a quote. Go for it. The lesson I have thoroughly learned and wish to pass on to others is to know the enduring happiness that the love of a garden gives. And that was Gertrude Jekyll, the famous British gardener.
1: Yes, author. the one who taught them all to garden with color. She was exactly. the one. Because they tended to do pale stuff. So our flower this week is actually a shrub, and it's kind of continuing in our berry series.
0: It is. You wanted to talk about clove currant which I am happy to talk about minimal experience with it but I had a tiny experience with it did you grow clove currant or did you grow other currants i don't know what currant i grew gotcha i might have grown what's commonly called gooseberries okay i i had this big idea so i've been at this house 25 years this summer and i look around and i think 25 years, you couldn't figure out what to do with that particular place by the house. 25 years, you couldn't figure out, you know. <laughs> so the garage, the garage border, I guess, it's on the side of the garage. And I, I'll have to go down and list all the iterations of that bed, which is now the pink flower bed, all pink yes, flowers. Yes, At one time, I had this big idea that I was going to grow gooseberries. hmm and I p- had gooseberries in there okay. and they just turned out to be a big mess. And so they they got summarily dismissed from that bed. I don't know what I thought I was going to do with gooseberries. You know, you, you have this vision that you're going to be like a prairie lady or something. Yeah, cook gooseberry no. pies, even though you've never bought a gooseberry to make gooseberry pies let alone eating gooseberry pie. I've eaten it and
1: I can tell you I'm not growing gooseberries because gooseberry pie is um, tart. It's extremely tart. I don't care how much sugar you put in it. My
0: grandmother used to make it. Well, that's, and yeah, I always laugh about like, well, we, we could get off on a tangent about Really sour fruit or rhubarb and things like that, and the amount of sugar you have to add, you might as well just make a sugar pie.
1: Exactly. Sugar pie with some fruit in it. And gooseberries are green. Well, let's go back to clove currant. All right. So, clove currant, I heard about for the first time, um, probably from Margaret Roach, because she wrote about it in her blog way back when in a way to garden. And I linked to it. Well, I don't know if we'll link to it in our show notes or not. Depends on how much room we have and i was fascinated by her descriptions of it and then i also was at bustani and i think kevin Gregg, who used to be the he used to be the videographer at oklahoma state university for oklahoma gardening and he's a good friend and he said you know you should grow clove currant so more than one person said something about it so i proceeded to try to grow clove currant and clove currant can be either ribbies arium. Or ribes odoratum, and there's some discussion about those species and blah blah blah. And I'm not going to go into it all. They both smell good. Um, they both have beautiful little yellow flowers. I really like the leaf shape on clove currant. It looks like a little palmate hand. It's really cute. Yes. Right. Yep. And so um, they smell really great in early spring. And then they turn red in the fall. I mean, really, there's just no good reason not to grow it. It does get really big and it can get six feet tall and four to six feet wide. If it's that's big, if it's happy. Okay. So I started trying to grow it. I couldn't find anywhere locally. Um, If I could have found some out in the wild, I could have taken cuttings, but I never could find any because it's kind of hard to see once it's done its thing. So long story short i killed it twice i tried everything and then i thought well i'm going to try it one more time and i planted it in this really sandy area that doesn't get a uh-huh. lot of water it gets a little water from the drip irrigation but not much and i actually planted one on one side of a path and one on the other side of the path with the hope that they would make kind of these towering you know things that you had to look through to go down that path that was the idea they're still really small it is not a fast growing shrub. It's slow, but I quit killing it. So there was that. And then I planted another one of it over in this, on that border where my wall is on the East side of the house. I planted a piece there trying to see if it would work and it's actually in clay and it loves it there. So I don't know how you should grow clove currant. It sounds to me like it'll grow wherever it wants to. And you just have to keep trying.
0: I think you are probably right, and I I looked up both of these on the Missouri Botanical Garden site, and they're both native, and I think it's just a matter of finding the right native type spot for them, and then you would be good to go. Which is with a big shrub, kind of how natives are.
1: Natives can be quite picky, and I think sometimes we think, oh, it's native, so it should love growing here. Well, maybe it doesn't love your really rich soil, or maybe it loves clay, or, you know, it's just complicated. And my soil out where I live is sandy red soil with pockets of clay. And so anyway, it's worth trying. It's, I've got three of them now, and I'm hopeful that I'll get berries because I hopefully have a male and a female. We'll see. And there can be some cross-pollination. Are
0: these, these come in male and female? Heck if I know. I just know you need. I don't think they do. Why do
1: you need several different, why do you need several different bushes just to increase pollination?
0: Yes. And so that's the thing we had that conversation last week. So I know I I think it's just to uh, improve diversity or something, but it's so apples uh, have to have two varieties for cross-pollination. Yeah, but I don't
1: think that's the case in this particular thing. I'm not saying that you're wrong, but I'm saying they're all the same variety. It's not like apples where you have, you know, say a gala apple and a wine sap, and they have to bloom at the same time. Right. I don't, honestly, I don't know. I just know it's really hard
0: to get berries. Well, look up ribes, and that's how I say it. Yeah, it is ribes. Is it, is it dioecious? is Ribes dioecious. And that'll tell you whether you need female and male plants or whether it's just um, difficult to get seed. I know with, um, let me think, witch hazels, for example, that bloom really, really late in the fall or really, really, really early in the spring, they don't often set seed because there's no pollinators around. And that may be the issue. You know what I'm saying?
1: It might, that might be really it. Not so much that they're like apples and you need them all blooming in the well, it's kind of the same, but you just don't have different varieties. However, there is a variety that you can buy. And actually, I may have that native R. And that may be why I finally succeeded because I bought the ones that I succeeded with, I bought from Shooting Star Nursery, the two that are right across from each other. And Shooting Star Nursery has Crandall. When I looked up my email from the lady, I was going to see. Yeah. See, it just says I have Ribes odoratum. And so I don't know if I have Crandall or not. They may carry Crandall now. Anyway, my fingers are crossed about getting fruit. There is one thing we also need to say about this. It carries some of these carry a blight and I wrote it down, but now I can't find where I wrote it down in our notes.
0: Yeah, I was just looking up this dioecious thing and it said uh, that they wonder if it is a host plant for some rust. It's a or pine something. wilt rust, white pine wilt rust. And so in some
1: states at one time, it was against the law to grow them anywhere in the United States because they're trying to curb that. But you know it's a native plant, so it's impossible to completely curb that, and you don't want to get rid of native plants. So now it's only certain states that you can't grow ribes. Oklahoma is not one of those states. It's native here. And so you can definitely grow it. And the truth is, it is really, really, really smells amazing, honestly. So I
0: think it's worth growing. You know, it might be worth growing in (laughs) some. Here's the other thing. As I look things up on the internet, so because we don't do our research in advance, no, we wouldn't do <laughs> we that. Do some of it, I I believe that the the rivies that many of these are dioecious. It says, and you do need male and female plants. And I bet you
1: it's just like um, oh, not spice bush. So on spice bush, you can't tell whether it's male or female until it grows up and either produces fruit or doesn't produce fruit. So you have to have, so like spice bushes, I have three, I still don't have any droops yet. So, well, there we go. So it is dioecious and now we know. So if I I think I, but here's the thing, most people do one more thing. She's going to check one more thing. So most people do not care if they have fruit or not. I'm just growing the fruit for the birds. In the meantime, it is beloved by hummingbirds and also by butterflies. And it is a very early source of nectar for both. And then it turns a beautiful red in the fall. So I like ribes.
0: Okay. I was just looking up because if you were trying to grow gooseberries, which is a type of ribes, I just wondered if you would need uh, two plants.
1: I don't know. And I don't ever want to eat another gooseberry pie. So
0: I will probably never, ever do that. Okay. Okay. Well, if somebody really really wants to know, they'll have to do a search on the internet. Yes, they will. Do you want me to do the next <laughs> quote before we get a veggie? Yeah. When one
1: tugs at a single thing in nature, he finds it attached to the rest of the world. John Muir. He was a naturalist and a wilderness advocate, and thank God for him because we have a lot of a lot of parks partly because of John Muir. That's right. I once read a book by John Muir. And it was about how he walked from the very far north all the way to the sea in the very far south. He just took off and started walking. Huh. Bill wanted me to read it when we first uh, met, and I did. And it's it's I can't remember I can't remember the name of the book, but I remember just being shocked at how this man just decided to start walking. And he would sleep in people's barns. You know, he'd ask first, and a lot of times they'd invite him in for dinner. And
0: anyway very interesting. That was the way back in the day. Yeah, it was. That was the way. I don't know if I'd do that now. So our vegetable topic, this kind of came about because a couple of weeks ago, you and I were doing the podcast and my sister sent me a text visiting her daughter in New Orleans and showed me leaf miners on tomatoes and green beans, which I have never, ever seen in Indiana. And you said it's quite common to have leaf miners. It is where I live. Oh, and by the way, that book, was A Thousand
1: Mile Walk to the Gulf. That's the name of the book by John Muir. But yes, leaf miners. Okay, Leaf
0: miners, yes. You see them on green bean leaves a lot. I've only ever seen them here on columbines of all things. And so I was kind of shocked. And um, leaf miners, if anybody wants to know, it looks like a kid took like a a crayon or something and just drew squiggles all over the leaf in a lighter color than the leaf. Because that's the way the leaf, that's why they're called leaf miners. They- Right. They mine
1: inside the, in the middle of the leaf. So it just looks like squiggly lines. And um, I was thinking to myself, we have every awful bug there is. So, so does no, so does New Orleans.
0: <laughs> yeah. You're at the intersection of, of uh, land. <laughs> insect Island and bug burrow or something. I don't know.
1: We're definitely on the, what is it called? The migratory insect trail. We are definitely on that.
0: So That made you think about what we should do about, you know. Well, we should offer some good general advice because when I went to the Wild Geese Bookshop on Saturday to answer questions, the first question I got was, something's eating holes in my green bean leaves or something like that. I don't remember, but something was eating holes in the leaves. And I think that's the question everybody wants to know is, okay, I have bugs in my vegetable garden. Now what do I do?
1: Yeah, I had uh, one of my clients sent me a picture of little black, some type of beetle. And she was like, I sprayed neem on it. I don't like bugs, which I didn't know she didn't like bugs, but I might be the wrong person to write about that. I, and I just said, I I don't know which little black beetles they are. They could be Japanese beetles. They could be a lot of things. They're flea beetles. And I told her how to figure.
0: If they're little. If they're flea beetle. If no, they're, they're not that
1: little. Okay. They're not flea beetle size. I know those because those get on my eggplant. That's and right. I just wrote about how to grow eggplant and spent a lot of time on flea beetles because they're the worst on eggplant. So what do we do about bugs in our garden? Do we spray a lot of death? No, we don't <laughs> spray any death.
0: No chemicals. No. I mean,
1: no. I mean, the, the most death that I would ever do is maybe neem oil if I just felt like I had to, if it was a complete and total outbreak. But boy, that would be unusual at my house.
0: Yes. And so there's some basic things that everybody can do. The first thing is we, we talk about crop rotation and no, that isn't like spin your corn plants around dozy dough. <laughs> so where you planted corn last year, don't plant corn this year. And so if there right. were some pests that wintered over in that soil, it will be further to get to your corn at the other end of the garden. So that's the first right. thing.
1: Because a lot of things burrow down into the soil right beneath your plant, exactly, after to finish their life cycle, and so you want to move things around, and that's also how you keep from getting root knot nematodes on your tomatoes. You need to, you cannot grow tomatoes in the same place over and over again. I realize that in my containers, I've told people that I use the potting soil for three years, but I also remove the top third of it, use it for you know switch that out, and then by the third year I switch the whole thing out. Right. And I don't throw that in the trash. I put it in my compost pile or somewhere else in the garden where it won't be a problem. And I think on gardener's world,
0: Monty Don talked about this when I listened to it yesterday. Yeah. He's big into the vegetables in the containers this year. He's doing a big thing on that. Which
1: is great. Um, I'm excited that he's doing it. He's growing them both in his raised beds in his garden and also in containers, which In my book, when I wrote that book years ago, I was like, a raised bed is just a great big container. Exactly. That's that's what it is. Okay, so you're going to move stuff around. And then the other thing is
0: healthy plants. Right. So buy healthy plants, grow healthy plants. And if you have a plant that is seriously ailing and looks diseased, immediately remove it and toss it. I would toss it in the trash. I wouldn't put it in my compost pile.
1: I wouldn't either. And don't feel bad about pulling it. Sometimes you will just get a plant that is not happy. And you and I talked last week about, or the week before, because I listened to both episodes while I was in the car the other day, about our, our peas. Our peas didn't do well this year. For whatever reason, mine were short, They matured early. They were just not happy at all. And I am not sure about why, but I'm going to guess that maybe that soil is tired in that area and needs a lot more compost. And one of the ways that you can make your plants healthy and keep them healthy is to use compost. But you're also going to just fail sometimes.
0: Right. By the way, my peas are growing and they have started to flower. And as long as they look healthy and are growing, I'm going to let them grow because Peas are a legume. Legumes fix nitrogen. So they grab it from the air and make it available for themselves and then for plants that come later. So that's another thing. If you're not sure about your soil, you can always plant beans in that spot. And that just makes things better the next year, usually. Right. That's a good, that's really good advice. I pulled mine
1: because I was at the end of pea season anyway and decided I didn't care. And so, and besides I'm getting ready to put all those sunflowers in there.
0: All right. And so the other thing you can, but the point is, uh-huh. the point is I, I wrote something. I have to say it because I'm really proud of what I wrote here. You can't be precious about your plants. Sometimes they just got to go. Oh, I didn't, I don't <laughs> see where you wrote that, but you're absolutely right. So then sometimes we use
1: row covers. I did it for my squash uh-huh. plants. I planted them in that Vegapod for two years in a row to... I wanted to see if it'd work. It did work. Um, because I have terrible squash bug issues and then, um, handpick big pests like hornworms. Yes. And in fact I take the hornworms and sacrifice one tomato, usually a cherry tomato. Cause I usually have too many of those. So I sacrifice one plant and I just put everybody over on it because I'm a freak. All right. And then, um, but you know, cutting hornworms in half is very satisfying or feeding them to the chickens. If that's what you want to do. If you have chickens. I used to. I don't anymore. So then you're going to plant. I I like this. Plant detractor plants around plants that are known to have issues. What is a detractor plant?
0: Well, that's like, um, I'm I'm probably using that word wrong. But if you remember Jessica Wallace's book, Plant Partners, Science-Based Companion Planting Strategies for the Vegetable Garden. One of the best books we read this year for just good info. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we last year or last year it. whatever. But to me, um a detractor plant is maybe a plant that would attract the the um pest and so it would stay off your vegetable oh, crop like a trap plant. Yeah. yeah. I use detract or a deterrent plant sometimes like um she said plant nasturtiums for example around your squash plants and that helps to deter the squash bugs. Yeah. And I'd I think it worked somewhat. I had the most beautiful nasturtium plants last year. Yeah. So that there's all kinds of different strategies that she has in that book. And so I think we'll we'll re-recommend that book as well.
1: And one of the one good example of this I just wrote about for my eggplant deal. Radishes are a great trap plant for flea beetles. In fact, flea beetles love radishes. And so if you plant radishes first and the flea beetles all run to them and devour them, they won't devour your eggplant. So that's another, right. It's kind of the same thing.
0: And then kind of the same thing. And then
1: I wrote, encourage lots of pollinators and other insects so that we have birds and predator insects in our gardens. The truth is, is especially in the South, it's very buggy out there. A bug eat bug world. In fact. Yes. So indeed it for is almost for almost every insect, unless it's an introduced insect, like the blasted Japanese beetle, there is a predator insect. Yes. But unfortunately for the Japanese beetle, we really don't have a predator insect. I mean, I've never even seen a generalized predator go after them. So you're going to have to go around and shake them off into soapy water. They're the pits. Or just cut all your blooms off the first time, and then they get through their stupid cycle and
0: then go away. So, yeah, yeah. Japanese beetles, I I still hate them. I've gardened with Japanese beetles for my entire life and they're kind of new in Oklahoma. Kind of new. So they're I'm extremely
1: like, new. Two years.
0: You got to kind of get over it. I'm you? not over it. They're going to this. Yeah. It's just, it's, you know, I will say this.
1: I listened to um, a podcast and it was with CL Fonari. And she said that they kind of stay in the same area of the garden. And they do because they finish their life cycle burrow down in the ground and become grubs again and all that yucky stuff. Um, So, you know, the good news is they aren't over my whole garden.
0: They're really in two sections. You know what else is good when you have Japanese beetles? If you have extreme drought, like we had here in 2012, which was 10 years ago, and I don't want extreme drought. The ground was so hard that the little beetles couldn't, the Japanese beetles couldn't lay their eggs. And so subsequent years, 2013, 14, 15, the population was really, really low because they sort of disrupted things. Mm -hmm. It's it's building back up gradually. So they're
1: obnoxious and they eat my Japanese maple trees, which makes me grumpy too. So the point is we just probably aren't going to, I mean, if I'm going to use a natural insecticide, um, it's a last resort. And I try to do other things first. And I also put up with some damage on my plants. Like right now my basil has little holes in it
0: and I'm like, I don't care. I'll just pinch that part off. Right. Or like my corn, sometimes I'll get, this is going to sound gross, but you get the uh, earworm Earworms. in this up in the silk end. And my aunt said, oh, you just cut that off and eat the corn anyway. So I'm like, okay, because it's always in the tip. You just cut that off and eat the corn anyway. It doesn't bother anything. It's not that gross. We do that too. And also you can spray
1: those corn ears with Pam, the silk. Yes. And it keeps from getting down in there. I used that in a, a tip in an article one time, and my editor was like, "Does that really work?" And I said, "Yeah, people used to use mineral oil and an eyedropper, but now you can just spray Pam on them if you want to, if it's big deal to you." When I was growing up, there were always corn earworms. Yeah, just, in the corn, just cut those off. It's just part of it. That's how you know it's organic,
0: exactly. So my niece for her green beans and tomatoes that were just. I'd never seen anything so destroyed. I think that she decided they would pull the plants, get some new soil, and she's down in New Orleans, so they're just starting over.
1: Yeah, because she's got plenty of time, especially if she grows bush beans.
0: Yeah, plenty of time. So that's our tips to keep your garden or to tolerate bugs in your garden. Your garden will never be bug-free.
1: No, not if you don't just, you know, spray a lot of stuff on it and or use systemics. And we know now that that's not good for anybody. So
0: including you who are going to eat the food. That's right. I will do the next quote. Only fools view their gardens in monetary terms. The real point of a garden is to increase the value of our lives. And that is by Anne Pavard, the British garden writer that we went on obsessively about last week. (laughs) who we really, really, really enjoyed. Exactly. And I did get the library book that you shared last week, so I am ex- i haven't dug into it yet, but I will. Are we talking
1: about our current but, book? Is that what we're talking about or a different book? No,
0: I was talking about another Anne Pavard book, oh, okay. The Seasoned
1: Gardener or something like the that. Seasonal, the Seasonal Gardener, which is
0: good. I've almost yeah, finished it. I got that. Haven't had a chance to dig in yet. But The Rooted Life, Cultivating Health and Wholeness Through Growing Your Own Food by Justin Rhodes is our book this week. My library has not served up that copy yet. So Dee, take it away. Tell us why we need to read this one. Well, I don't know if
1: you need to read this one. If you are a gardener who has done a lot of gardening over the years, you might not need to read it. Um, it's, It's more of an, in my opinion, it's more of an elementary book. And I don't mean that as a negative. You know what I mean? It's more for when you're just starting out. Uh, Justin Rhodes is a permaculturist which means that he tries to grow I mean how do you define a permaculturist they like grow things in a permanent area they don't change a lot of stuff to in order to grow I don't even know what that is exactly do
0: you the permaculture to me is about what you described there's probably an official like definition but it to me it's it's where you have multiple layers in the garden you know like trees and shrubs and everything kind of works together and blah, blah, blah. So,
1: so I'm a permaculturist then. Pretty much. I mean, if, if you grow, so I looked it up on Wikipedia because I wanted to know what the actual definition was, because it just says he's a permaculturist. So it's an approach to land management and settlement design that adopts arrangements observed in flourishing natural eco- ecosystems. All right. So you still, in my opinion, you still have to weed, but you know, I get it. Um, he's interesting because he's also a film producer. So he wants to work with nature and produce your own sustenance. So he's a homesteader. Um, I, I thought it was a good book. It gave some good information and um, but to me, it seemed elementary. Does that make sense? It does make sense. But if you were just starting out, I mean, it's got beautiful pictures and of course, because he's a, uh, filmographer and, you know, such, he knows exactly what he's doing. So it, the pictures are beautiful. In fact, there's a picture of him on the front and he's holding a lap full of, um, sweet potatoes or some kind of thing with sweet potatoes, which if you live in the South, like he does, cause he lives in North Carolina in Asheville, you're going to be able to grow uh-huh. you some serious sweet potatoes. I did it in Oklahoma. I, I didn't know that sweet potatoes would take over your entire garden. And I'm also part of a, um, CSA and we got a lot of sweet potatoes in that too. So if you live in the South and you want to look like you're a good gardener, grow sweet potatoes. Cause it's not hard. Um, he is also, he does natural chicken care. This is basically about his life and how he tries very hard to grow things that are super good for you and do really, you know, and do really well. It's a good book. It's fine. Very nice. That wasn't a very, that wasn't, a, I didn't like, you know, It's the writing is not like what we were talking about last week, like Anna Pavard.
0: It's very straightforward. Well, I will be getting a copy from the library and it probably, it says four weeks. It's still four weeks out. So it's a book. Well, the book is really popular. I can imagine. So, and it ticks
1: all the boxes of what the new homesteaders are interested in which is sustainability, which is part of permaculture, Um, having a connected lifestyle to the land. They kind of remind me of the back to the land people of the seventies. Yes. And kind of how I was when I first moved out to our garden too. I thought I was going to do a lot of canning, a lot of freezing, a lot of, I I really thought I was going to have this giant garden and I had chickens. I have bees but now, 33 years later, I can tell you that um, it costs more to produce eggs than to get eggs.
0: Because uh, <laughs> the feed
1: is so high.
0: I, I can believe that. I can
1: believe that yeah. for sure. And I, ha- I have some friends who feed their um, chickens naturally, and so it's less expensive. But I wanted eggs with really good yolks and really, really Really yellow ones, so I fed them some corn. Anyway, there's there's
0: a lot to learn from this, um, etc. Okay, that's our book, "The Rooted Life: Cultivating Health and Wholeness Through Growing Your Own Food" by Justin Rhodes. Hit that next quote, D.
1: Sweet flowers are slow, and weeds make haste. William Shakespeare. Um, yeah, weeds are a pain in the be. They are, and yeah. <laughs> especially when you get rain on those years, you know, how you said, you don't ever want to go through that drought again, which was when I visited Indianapolis, but, um, and looked at gardens. That was not their best year. The good, the good news is when it's hot and dry, there aren't as many weeds. That is true. That is, that is quite true. Right now there's a lot of weeds in in spite of mulch, but our dirt this week, um, you found through a great, newsletter that we both now subscribe to. And it's the call.
0: Remember back when we talked about Brooklyn Bridge Park? I do that. Margaret Roach had written about it. We found it just fascinating that it was fascinating. So they have produced a mulch guide and we are going to link to it. And it is really pretty good. And I want to talk about that. They have three points to their mulch philosophy, which I think every gardener needs to pay heed to. First of all, I'm ready. mulch is only placed when necessary. They don't just mulch as a routine seasonal application in all areas. And so you you see that, you know, homeowners do it, parks do it, shopping centers do it. It's like it's spring, bring in the mulch, cover everything with a layer of mulch. right?
1: Right. When actually the plants, as they grow up, will also provide what I call green mulch, which is they shade out other smaller plants. Right. And so in my garden, I don't need as much mulch as I used to um, because I just, I just don't. And there are certain areas I mulch a little more than others because I want the seeds to fall and produce more seed. And so um, there are some things that I don't mulch as heavy on purpose, but they mostly use what is left over from when they clean up the garden in the spring, which is what you and I found so fascinating about this topic in the, in the beginning. Yes. It says whenever possible,
0: we use fallen plant material, leaves and stems as a mulch rather than purchase material. This is important because plants use leaves and dead material to build the soil. They need many organisms also live in the duff layer and we are trying to encourage them. That's good. So perhaps we should explain what the duff
1: layer is. I don't know that every listener is going to understand what duff is. The duff layer is, I'll
0: just say to me, it's the top layer of the. Yeah, it's the very top
1: of the deal. And if you take mulch and pull it back and it's any type of wood mulch and that I would assume that also includes stems, you'll see mycorrhizae in there. And mycorrhizae is the key, in my opinion, to a really good garden, a really healthy garden with lots of creatures because mycorrhizae is the first building block of your soil. And it, it's a, it's very important. People ask all the time why my dirt's so good. And I'm like 33 years of mulch and leaves and stuff like that. So one of the things they do in this group is that they chop up the stems into six inch or smaller pieces. And that way also the little baby insects that are, I guess they'd be adults by this time. The insects that overwinter in your stems of some of your perennials can come out
0: and do their thing. That's right. And then the third cornerstone of their philosophy is mulch is less of a blanket to put on top of soils and more of a constructed O-horizon. It's future soil, a slow motion amendment. With few exceptions, mulch should be the sort of matrix your plants want to grow in, which I remember horizons from soil science class and I would have to go back and they, you know, if you if you deconstruct soil from the top down, there's different horizons, they call them. Right. So I'm gonna to link to a, a website I found about horizons. So if somebody's like, oh Carol, I really want to learn more about soil horizons, that'll be there. Um, I love their benefits of mulch section, which is next. Um
1: there was something that I just saw that looked really, oh, this part, soil amendment. The mulch you should, the mulch you use should match the needs of the plants you're mulching. No wood chips should be on meadow plants, etc. It can take years, but mulch can affect pH, OM content, and fungal bacterial ratios. And that goes back to the mycorrhizae thing. So like in my uh, meadow, I would never take mulch that is out of my forest and put it in my meadow. It, it wouldn't no. work. It's much, much better. Like what Bill and I do is in the pretty early spring, we mow everything down. We let it sit all winter so that, you know, the creatures can be in the stems. And then we just do one quick mow across it. And so I have, you know, stems that are that long. I Well, I shouldn't say that long. Nobody can see me but you know, 12 inches long that lay down and grasses and stuff. And then the little plants can come up through that because that's what it would naturally do. Those things would lay down in the spring when they're done.
0: Right. So that's from the Brooklyn Bridge Park, new mulch guide. And it's, it's worth a read through the entire thing, because it'll change how you think about mulch and uh, maybe some of the practices in your garden and, it's it's just well worth it. We will not be given a quiz next week, but we do expect our listeners to be well-versed in this. Well, I just
1: think it would be really great for them to read it. I think it'll open up your eyes to what mulch really does and why certain mulches matter. And I get asked a lot about mulch when I go to see clients right. and I'm like, you know, I personally think you should use certain types, but that's just me.
0: Yes. I used to get asked at work. And, you know, what kind of rock should they use as mulch? And I'm like, okay, you missed the whole point. Rocks isn't mulch. It's loose paving. Get out of my office. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Come back when you know something. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, I'll do do the next quote. Half the interest of a garden is the constant exercise of the imagination. And that is Mrs. C.W. Earle. Born in 1836, died in 1925, and she had a book called Potpourri from a Surrey garden written in 1897. I found the quote. I do not have the book. (laughs) That is a lost lady of garden writing. Uh I will put her on my list, but I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole just at the moment because, Dee, am I the last to know about the Aunt Dimity series of mysteries? Well, I knew about it. (laughs) I don't know. Are you stuck I, there honest, now? <laughs> Honestly, I had not heard of these mysteries until last week when the wild geese bookshop put on Instagram, it was a rainy day and they had a picture of that mystery, like the perfect book to read. And I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. They're kind of adorable. They are very adorable. <laughs> so I read the, the 19th book in the series uh-huh. and sort of figured out some things. So I went back and I, Find found the first book and checked it out from the library, and read it yesterday. So I'm all caught up as to how the series starts. And then I looked up the website, and the author says you really should read them in order because well things they build happen. On each other. Yeah, things happen. I know. So I've read one and nineteen, <laughs> and nineteen I I actually listened to. I didn't read it. I had the audio book, and so. Now the library says it's going to be two weeks before I get the second book. Uh-oh, so I found I'm going to listen to an audiobook later in the series. I don't care i I don't care that I'm doing it out of order. but I always thought,, oh, maybe this is my summer reading program is I'll do the whole Aunt Demity series of twenty two books. That would be a great summer reading program for you because you don't watch TV at night. No, and they these books takes place in the Cotswolds, which is in England, where I'm going in August. I know. So the funny thing is, not funny, huh? There's there's a lot of gardening references in there. They're working in gardens and I've already kind of picked up on that. So I feel I feel like it's related somehow to gardening. It is. Anyway. It's that was my rabbit hole this week. It's like, oh, suddenly Carol. My only excuse is, you know, I was working back then and I just didn't have as much time for reading. And I'm I'm gonna read the entire Aunt Dimity series. Yeah. And I don't read it by Nancy Atherton. I should note they're by Nancy Atherton who lives in Colorado Springs, Colorado and wrote all about the Cotswolds. Go
1: figure. Go figure. Tell me about your rabbit hole. So you can teach an old dog, new tricks. Bow wow. Bow wow. Bow wow. So I'm still researching petunias and I figured out something I've been doing wrong all these years when you deadhead petunias, and it's so obvious that it just irritates me that I did not pick up on it. So you should pinch off below the seed capsule instead of just pulling off the dead petunia blossoms, which is duh. You didn't know that? No, I didn't know that. I didn't think about it. I just pull off the dead blossoms and duh, they, then they make seeds. So the whole point of that is you don't want them to make seeds and you also want to cut them back by a third every week or two weeks to keep them fluffy. Unless you have the type of petunia that is um, self-cleaning. If it's self-cleaning, it probably doesn't produce as much seed and you don't have to worry about it, but you still need to cut them back. And of course they're sticky. So, you know, you're going to have to clean off your clippers when you do that. So when I sit out there on the deck, I'll be snapping off the little seed capsules below, like the stem right below where the flower is.
0: Right. Right. I'm just. OK, stop. Yeah. And <laughs> I just didn't think the, about it. <laughs> well, the thing is, so at the, the greenhouse, they, um, you know, they'll have tons of hanging baskets full of beautiful petunias, mm-hmm. but they go they get leggy pretty quick. And so they'll pull them and then they'll shear them back, hide them in the back and they'll they'll bush right out again and then they they'll send them out again. But you've got to tell people, hey, those are really going to have to be sheared back a couple of times, at least in the summertime to keep them looking nice. No
1: one has ever told me that. And and you can't wait too long either. Because if you wait too long and cut them back by half, then that'll make them freak out because of our hot weather. So, you know, I didn't take horticulture greenhouse management. Well, that's what you were just talking
0: about. But I I mean, it's been 40 plus years, so a lot has changed since I was in college, I'll tell you that. I, I just, I just, I don't know. I just knew this.
1: Yeah, anyway. You did know this and I didn't. And so I'm going to go out there and fix them.
0: Um, but you know, stuff I don't know. I doubt it.
1: Okay, so no. anyway, should
0: we go on to our garden commissions? What are you going to do? We should. Okay, so... Because it's going to be cool most of the week and rain off and on, I think there's some plants that I want to try to move around, and this is probably a good week to do that. I need to finish cleaning up the vegetable bed and actually seriously start sowing the seeds for the vegetables I grow from seeds. And I need to do some serious work edging the back borders because they're, they are they need attention. And something is digging all through that bed under my honey locust tree. Uh-oh. And I, I fear it's chipmunks. I fear that there's going to have to be serious action taken, but more on that later. Chipmunks. I'm glad we don't have those. They really are. Oh, those. my God. What? Wait, back up, Jack. You don't have chipmunks? No. Chipmunks oh. don't live in Oklahoma. Thank God. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> they do live in Indiana. And uh, they are. They're terrible. They're so destructive. Oh, so just uh, so adorable. They people are. Will, people will teach them how to eat out of their hand. Oh, I've
1: fed a chipmunk before out of my hand at the, you know, like at a rest stop or somewhere. Uh-huh.
0: Oh, in Colorado. Oh, oh. So, yeah, it's a situation. I should take pictures to show you, Dee. It's a situation that I, I'm ignoring and I need to not ignore. So, tell me about your garden this week. <laughs> Um, I'm going to finish planting the last few verbena
1: bonariensis that are in my greenhouse. And I planted another whole flat of marigolds from seed and I don't have anywhere to put them. So I'm going to have to think on that. Yes, you do.
0: You do have, you I have, really don't. You have seven acres. We've had this conversation <laughs> before. They you don't
1: fit into my whole aesthetic. I can't just put them anywhere.
0: And then, oh my gosh, <laughs> seriously, I have to tell you about the whole aesthetics thing about it. Well, so I'm doing these monochromatic color screens in some of the containers on the back patio. Yes. So I bought this pink Angelina to do in the pink container. Mm-hmm. Starts blooming white. <laughs> when you say Angelina, so do you, you mean
1: Angelonia, like summer snapdragon? Angelonia. Okay. I mean Angelonia. Okay.
0: I'm sorry. I, That's Angelonia. okay. I was just
1: wondering, Want to make sure we were talking yeah. about the same plant. Angelonia. They're notorious for so, being mismarked.
0: Yeah. So I was at the greenhouse yesterday and I went back and she had just a few left, pink tags, white flowers. And I came up and I said, hey, Miss Mark. And she's like, oh, that's a problem. I I bought something else. So I moved the white ones to the white container and I put something else in there that's going to be pink. But she was doing monochromatic containers around her patio on her house next door to the greenhouse. Mm -hmm. And she says, I would be so upset.
1: I think you guys are a little tense over pink versus white, but I mean, orange and yellow, it doesn't just go everywhere. So I'm going to have to figure out what anyway. I'm doing with those. And then I'm going to have to figure out what to do with the rest of my Everleaf Emerald Towers basil. Cause I have a lot of it. And I also have a lot of, why
0: do you have a lot of it? Did you grow it all from seed? Yeah. I grew it from seed. I didn't buy it. Oh.
1: And then, um, Everything's really flush in my garden now. Remember how last week we talked about the Chelsea chop and I said, no, yeah. not yet. Blah, blah, blah. Well, now it's all like poof. It's all grown up. So Chelsea. How's flower, that go
0: again? Poof. Chelsea, That's what I thought. can you see my perennials term.
1: going poof? I can. Poof. So the Chelsea flower show is next week, by the way. I heard that on. I got to go that one time. I would love to go back. I wish I lived there sometimes. Anyway, I digress. That means it's time for the Chelsea chop. Or in your case, the Indianapolis 500 chop. That's so right. we need to chop back our perennials that we don't want to outgrow places. And by the way, you can chop back a lot of things. Like sometimes I chop back paniculata because it wants to outgrow my roses that are planted in the same place. And I don't want them dwarfed by the phlox. So I cut that back. I cut a lot of things back. Uh, sneezeweed, autumnal sneezeweed, because it gets too tall. So I, I chop it back masters, mums. Oh, and as long as we're talking about my garden, remember I had that one um, package of plants that got lost for a week and they all showed up Uh half dead. The only thing that survived out of that group were um, three Will's wonderful mums, which is one of my favorite mums. But now I have six instead of three because they sent me more. So I have six. That's good, too. Yeah, No, it's not good. Will's Wonderful takes up a lot of space. So I don't know where I'm going to put these because everything's grown in now. Anyway, those are my problems that I will deal with this week. How about you?
0: Well, I've already told you about my problem with my uh, chipmunks.
1: Yeah, you and your chipmunks. Oh, that's right. I let you go
0: first. I can't remember. Yeah, we changed up the order. (laughs) Anyway, that is it. Thank you for listening to The Garden Angelist. If you like our podcast, please tell your friends about us. Also hit the subscribe button so you don't miss anything. And if you listen to
1: Apple Podcasts, we'd love a five-star review that helps us get noticed by others. Could you also share our podcast, our crazy podcast, with your gardening friends? Word of mouth
0: is still the best way to get the word out there. Yes, and be sure and check out our show notes for links for more information about today's topics, plus links to our own websites. If you want to help support us, use the affiliate links. If you buy something after clicking through on them, we earn in a small commission and it costs you nothing. It was lovely to chat with all of you over the
1: Garden Gate this week and bye until next week. Bye, everybody.